Hello, everyone, and welcome to Speaking with Joy, a podcast to fill your soul, challenge your mind, and make you brave. I'm your host, Joy Clarkson, and an evangelist for all things good, true, and beautiful. So make yourself a cup of tea, find somewhere comfortable, and let's dive in to this week's episode. For me, as for many others, the reading of detective stories is an addiction like tobacco or alcohol. The symptoms of this are, firstly, the intensity of the craving. If I have any work to do, I must be careful not to get hold of a detective story, for once I begin, I cannot work or sleep till I have finished it. Hello everyone, and welcome back to Speaking with Joy. This is one of my episodes in the series that I like to call in my mind the Escape Cast some wholesome and fascinating um, distraction for these weeks and months that we find ourselves in. And today I have the great fun of welcoming a dear friend onto the show. Welcome, Bose Harrington. Hello, Um, Bose, before we dive into this week's episode, in which we will be discussing one of my and your um, favorite topics, which is mystery novels, why don't you give everyone a bit of an introduction into yourself? Um, I am a mystery writer. I'm working on my first book, and in my free time, I ghostwrite mysteries. Yes, what you do with great alacrity. How, how many books have you ghostwritten, do you think, over your... 30, 40. Wow, that is wild. But also, people would also know you for your Twitter presence, which is a great delight in yes. these strange times. Where do you tweet? Uh, oh, Sketches by Bose. Sketches by Bose. That's where we actually first met. Um, for... Four years ago. Was it four years ago now? Okay, do you want to know something funny? I was thinking about this. I remember finding your account four years ago-ish, and it was very relatable and funny. It posts, you, you put it for the, the shy nerd, right? Is that what your bio is? Mm-hmm. Um, quality tweets to the shy nerd. And I, I found it, and it was just very delightful and full of literary jokes and a strangeness of dark humor that I also share. But... I really, we started talking and I actually started engaging with you in another period of time in which I was stuck in the house for a long time, which was in Colorado in 20, I think it was 20, yeah, it was early 2016. There was this series of blizzards that for about six weeks, every weekend, we would be snowed in where it would be like you would go in on Thursday night and you couldn't get out until Monday morning. And I remember the fifth uh, week in a row of this, Joel and I saw the, the, Joel was home for that time and I was living in Colorado and we saw the clouds coming over the mountains and I was, I was like, absolutely, I don't even think I was panic stricken. I was just irritated that I had to stay home for one more weekend because I was just very stir crazy and I may be a nerd, but I'm not a shy nerd. And so I was like, no, not another week of being locked in our house, our beautiful house. Um, but it was that weekend that... I decided to enjoy the depths of Twitter, and I think either one of us marathon watched Lord of the Rings, um, and we started. I, do you remember this at all? Because I I remember it as like the time when I clicked into Twitter and we had several conversations about uh, Lord of the Rings and books, and ever since then we've um, kind of kept up, and then we got to meet last year at one of the conferences. Hopefully not for the last time. Hopefully not for the last time. I know this this year has um, 
bungled us so far, but um, but hopefully we will meet again soon. And we've also gotten to do several podcasts together. So um, this is like our seventh or eighth podcast. It is. Yes, we've done. What? Which ones have we done so far? We did one on fairy stories. One on Chesterton. Yes. And one on several Fred- poetry reading podcasts. Yes, some of them are on our Patreon. One of the Inklings. Yes, one of the Inklings. That was we did one on friendship and the Inklings when we came up with Girls Club. Um, so Bose and I have been partners in crime uh, for a while now, and now we're going to be partners in crime novels. <laughs> um, so Bose, how we were talking about this before, uh, but how have you been spending some of your quarantine time? What have you been reading? Well, as per usual, I've been reading and watching a lot of mysteries. Um, I've really gotten into Perot again lately. I watched all the Perots back in 2015, and now I'm sort of rediscovering him because I've been going through the Agatha Christie novels one by one and reading them and outlining them. And, uh, and he he's probably her best creation. I think she was always... There's one Miss Marple novel that I really love, but with that exception, I think all of her best novels are Perrault's. <clears throat> Poirot is just such a a real and living character, and I don't know if you feel this way, but I feel like David Suchet truly brought him to life. In the... It's perfect. Like he was, God created him to make to <laughs> portray Perrault. When his mother was rocking him in her arms, thinking, "What will this this child be born to do?" It was he was born to play Poirot. I wish Agatha had gotten to see him, and her son and grandson have said the same thing. It's like he walked off the page. Yeah. Um, My comforting thing, so, is that I've been watching Poirot's. So, it's this really strange thing when you transition to working from home, when you all of a sudden just find yourself sitting with your computer in the same place for hours and hours. And there's a library thing connected to the university here where we can get all of the Poirot's for free. So, I've just been keeping them on in the background while I answer emails and grade papers. And it's just been so comforting and fun to do. Um, and that also led me to discover the fact that David Suchet has a autobiography called um, Poirot and Me, um, which I purchased with one of my Audible credits because, you know what? What else do I have to do? <laughs> um, so you said something which could have slipped by people's ears very quickly, which is that you out you read and outline the books. Um, yes, because I want to figure out how she wrote these masterpieces of construction. Yes. They're so perfectly plotted. So how many of these books have you outlined? And what do you, like, how do you outline them? Do you kind of, like, look at by scene, or how do you do that? I think I'm on my 24th or 25th, and I, I outline them according to... Um, uh, the dramatic structure, like if she included a moment of foreboding, I will include that in a block. Or if uh, there's a conflict, I'll, mm-hmm. I'll block that. Or um, a moment of inner conflict where a character is trying to decide between one option or another. Mm-hmm. And um, everything that she, that she writes in a novel can can be categorized according to one of these elements, foreboding Mm -hmm. conflict, inner conflict, um, the occasional foreshadowing, Mm -hmm. um, action. And 
Yeah. So how has that helped you write when you when you are writing or ghostwriting? Does it help you shape your own novels? It does because there's kind of an underlying emotional architecture to the stories hmm. that I think is deeper than just uh, this plot point happens and this other plot point happens. I think people get hung up on the surface level plot and they don't see what's going on beneath the surface because what she's trying to do is to get you emotionally engaged mm. and uh, um, she has techniques for doing that that are not often visible mm. and so you have to read under the surface to see how she's gripping you and you have to pay attention to your emotional responses yes and that kind of leads us um as we can kind of segue into the kind of meat of today's podcast into why we've been talking about mystery novels are so kind of comforting in, in these kinds of times, and, and just in life in general. I've heard a lot of people say that there's something very cathartic or comforting or soothing about mystery novels, and that's really an odd thing to say when you think about it, because, you know, they're usually about some kind of murder or mayhem or something being, you know, snatched or done wrong. Um, but I think that there's in these kind of ambiguous and anxiety-ridden times, there's this theological and emotional satisfaction in mystery novels. And that's what we kind of want to explore today. In addition to, I'm going to pick Bose's brain on some tips for how to construct your own mystery novel. Um, should you all want to do that in your time of quarantine? When better to write the mystery novel that you've been plotting and thinking about than now? It's hilarious because you're kind of afraid to tell people that you love stories that involve murder and bloodshed because you don't want them to think you're a freak. But <laughs> they have this way of channeling your anxiety and getting rid of it. Yes. And that's where the catharsis comes in. Yes. You have this wonderful quote from P.D. James. Do you want to read that for us? The mystery is very much the modern morality play. You have an almost ritual killing. You have a murderer who in some sense represents the forces of evil. You have your detective coming in, very likely to avenge the death, who represents justice, retribution, and in the end, you restore order out of disorder. Hmm. And I think that is at the heart of it why I love mystery novels. It's the order out of disorder. Um, so before we get into this deeply, um, could you tell us, tell us a bit from what you know about like the history of the genre? It's interesting because I don't think most people are aware of this, but there are actually several detective stories in the Apocrypha, in the, the Hebrew Bible. Really? There's in one of the chapters of Daniel that is not in the Protestant Bible. Mm -hmm. There um, is a mystery called Susanna and the Elders uh -huh. um, with a woman who uses sort of an early detective technique to figure out that someone is trying to trick her and she exposes this person in this very dramatic Perot-like scene. <laughs> and then there's this other story, I think it's also in the book of Daniel, called Bell and the Dragon. And it feels very modern when you read it, it's strange. But the modern mystery story began sort of in the 1840s, 1860s, with Perot had a detective, no, Poe, and... Uh, then Charles Dickens was sort of drifting into writing mysteries towards the end of his life, abetted by his friend Wilkie Collins, who wrote um, The Moonstone and uh, A Woman in White. And uh, that prompted Arthur Conan Doyle to write Sherlock Holmes, who then went on to inspire 
um, Father Brown and uh, Agatha Christie. And it's really interesting if you compare the Perot novels to Sherlock Holmes, um, she essentially took his formula and perfected it because you have the eccentric, fussy main character, somewhat antisocial, mm-hmm. um, obsessively nerdy, and then you have their more conventional, attractive best friend who is deeply attracted to women and is kind of dim-witted, and then you have the bluff, hearty British police inspector, and uh, everyone since then has sort of just been copying that structure, that mm-hmm. the template that Conan Doyle established and that Agatha then perfected. It's funny, I think um, even in things like TV shows, like when I think of Monk, um, if you think of that as a TV show, it's like an Americanized version of that, where you have, you know, someone who's very eccentric and strange and like has their oddities. And then instead of having his, um, his Watson, he has his, his Natalie, who's like the very um, normal, nice, worldly, and then the very like macho American, red-blooded uh, police officer. So it's very much like that same kind of structure, but moved over to different TV shows. It reminds me of, you know how in romanticism, you start to have this kind of like image of the artist who, um, if he's going to be artistic, he has to be crazy. And like that, you know, it's kind of like that model, but instead of being an artist, it's about being a detective. Uh, You know what I mean? It's kind of an export to that. Um, Now, you also, something we talked about is that, especially in the 20s, there's like a very deeply Christian kind of push in a lot of the mystery novels that you talked about, or like a lot of the people who wrote them were deeply religious? At the religious. time, the genre was dominated by um, very devout practicing Christians. For some reason, they uh, sort of took over the genre, kind of like how uh, Tolkien and Lewis and others took over the fantasy genre in the 40s. And uh, um, you had Ronald Knox who was a priest who wrote mysteries. You had Chesterton, who wrote about a priest who solved mysteries. You had Dorothy Sayers, who translated the Divine Comedy, but also wrote a series of, I think, nine or ten mm-hmm. Peter Whimsey novels. Um, and W.H. Uh, Auden and T.S. Eliot, they didn't write detective novels themselves, but they were both um, very vocally Christian, and they said like in the quote that you read at the beginning, that they were obsessed with mystery novels and they found theological significance in them, that they felt they communicated the truths of the gospel hmm. in a way that was presentable in an unbelieving age. Hmm. Um, it's interesting, too. So we did a podcast a while back on uh, the Inklings, uh, of course, who were mostly meeting in like the 30s to the 50s. But there was a similar group for detective writers in the 20s with Dorsey Sayers and Chesterton and they, I think it was called, do you remember what it's called? I think it was called the Skull and Crossbones Society. I don't remember. I think that's what it's called. And they, they met and like were devoted to the writing of mystery novels. And there's a, um, a myth, I'm not sure if this is true or not, they had an actual human skull that one of them had acquired that they had to make an oath on not, like, not to do these several like cheap mystery tricks. And so they had to like, you know, not do deus ex machina. Like you can't just... And um, anyway, so I always thought that was fun to know that they, they had their kind of pre-inklings, but for mystery novels. We should bring that club back. I agree. Yeah. Maybe maybe this is the time. We can all start writing our mystery novels. But it would be very important that we all swear not to do the bad um, 
mystery tricks in, in, the, in the novels. So, okay, so let's, you brought up this point of there being kind of a deeply Christian nature to the books. And you read that quote from P.D. James. Um, and it's fun that it mentions morality plays because I just did a podcast on those not too long ago. Um, but, well, I guess before we get into that, let's, let's talk about, you, you started to say that the mystery novel kind of structure. Um, and, um, you have this quote here from Borges who says, once you become acquainted with the mystery genre, all other fiction seems shapeless. So, um, Bows, this is the part where anyone who wants to write their mystery novel should get out their pen and paper. Um, what is the shape of mystery novel? I love mystery novels because they're, there's like a skeleton to them. They all, all have the same structure. Um, and uh, I think I figured this out when I started reading Harry Potter over and over again, mm-hmm. and then that led me to Agatha Christie, which um, she was sort of the the forerunner, the John the Baptist to J.K. Rowling. Oh, that's really interesting. Okay, so if you were to describe, so perhaps if we were to understand a mystery novel kind of structure, we could actually look to J.K. Rowling, who in some ways has perfected the perfection of Agatha Christie. Um, we were talking before, Bose, about The Prisoner of Azkaban as a mystery novel. Tell me some of your thoughts about that. In terms of, I think all but one, all but the last Harry Potter novel are fundamentally whodunits. And uh, what's really interesting to me in the discourse around Harry Potter is that people tend to think of them as fantasy novels, but they're, they're kind of, they kind of are, they're kind of not. I think they're primarily at their core, they are mysteries and uh, there's a certain element of misdirection in the fact that they've got wands and they're wizards and mm-hmm. they do magic. And so you don't notice the mystery elements. They're yeah. very cleverly concealed. But if you want to understand the the bones, the skeleton of the mystery novel, a good place to start is with the Harry Potter novels because they're so culturally influential and uh, also really basic in what they do. And Prisoner of Azkaban might be the best example of this because it's one of the purest examples of a mystery in the series. And uh, um, in each book in the series, except for the last one, has the same essential mystery structure where Harry meets a character who says, Harry, you are in terrible danger at the very beginning of the book. And then that grabs your attention and keeps you reading because you're thinking, why is Harry in danger? What is going on? And that introduces two things, first off. First, um, a sense of menace, and you sympathize with Carrie, so you want to understand, you want to see him get out of the danger. And then, secondly, um, a question. Um, Lee Child, who writes uh, mystery novels, said, if you want to keep readers engaged to the end of the book, um, a very cheap trick that you can play on them is to introduce a question at the beginning and then withhold the answer until the very end. And (laughs) J.K. Rowling does that in every single one of her books, and it's wonderful. And so she does that in, like, the first or second chapter of each book. And then the entire rest of the book, Harry is sort of just walking around Hogwarts playing detective, Mm. um, like a, a more conventional young adult Perot. And he 
Um, it's almost like a video game in some ways because you, you can put yourself in Harry's shoes and he walks around and he talks to ghosts and he um, looks at things and sort of puts the pieces together but doesn't really get it all until the very end. And then finally, like in a Nancy Drew novel, he, he normally ends up underground or in some hidden room in the castle or the shrieking shack or wherever and confronts either the villain or someone who can explain the villain's schemes to him. And so, you know, in all the Perot novels, there's a drawing room scene where Perot takes all the characters and says, he exposes their secrets and says, you've been doing this and it caused this to happen. And you were motivated for this reason to do this thing. And you were the murderer. And that happens in the Harry Potter novels too. It mm. just looks a bit different. For example, in, Prisoner of Azkaban, which again is probably the best example, Harry goes to the Shrieking Shack and they're like, oh, by the way, he's a dog and he, uh, that rat is actually a guy who's been sleeping with Ron for 13 years for some reason. And he's a werewolf and uh, Hermione can travel through time. And It's, it's just like, like a mystery novel if you could break all the rules of nature. Yes, it's like a mystery novel on acid. <laughs> it's so funny. It's like if if Agatha Christie was just like, what the hell, they're all animals. <laughs> and, and so you kind of, uh, and I feel like the Harry Potter books are a gateway drug into mysteries because kids read them and they go, this is fun. And they pick up a mystery novel later in life and they go, OMG, this is this is exactly like Harry Potter, just with an English boarding house, mm -hmm. a boarding school or a country house. And so um, she sort of raised a generation of readers. And if you go on Twitter, you find thousands of people who kind of got pulled into this formula when they were in third grade reading Prisoner of Azkaban and have been reading mystery novels their entire lives. Mm -hmm. They sort of internalized the structure and now they see it everywhere and they go after books that have that structure and shows that have that structure. Hmm. It's so interesting because I'm thinking about the podcast I just did a few days ago about um, morality plays, which have a similar structure in that they have this like introduction of menace, as you were saying, um, in medieval morality plays, that's like quite obviously embodied in that death comes to visit you and it's like, hey, I might take you now or maybe later. Um, and then and then the rest of the the novels kind of like, or, or the story is like preparing for this final encounter um, and hopefully catharsis so that you're like ready when it comes. And um, that's, you touched on something which I've been thinking about this week that I think is one of the reasons I love mystery novels. So if it begins with this sense of menace or question, and then it kind of, you pull through this, the sense of questioning and um, kind of searching for the answer until the end when you have this big reveal. And like you said, in Harry Potter, you have, this is all explained, in Poirot, you have the parlor where everyone, you know, hears the story. Um, I just watched Knives Out, which I loved. And there's a marvelous scene of kind of revelation when the, the detective in that uh, helps you see everything as it is. And that's kind of also one of the things of detective novels, of course, right, is the sense of dropping clues, like little breadcrumbs. And the detective or the reader is kind of collecting the breadcrumbs or the clues, but not until the very final moment, kind of knowing what it all means. And I've been thinking about uh, 
one of my friends was tweeting about, we've been talking about the word apocalypse, which apocalypse actually means uh, revealing or an unveiling. And so like when we have apocalyptic literature, uh, what it's doing is, is not, it's like it shows all these heavenly realities, but what it's meant to be doing is kind of peeling back the veil and helping us see. This is actually what's been taking place behind the scenes the whole time. And in that sense, I think that mystery novels are kind of apocalyptic because there comes this moment where all of a sudden the veil is torn off and we, we see what all of these clues, what all of this menace, what all, and, and it's this great satisfaction of knowing this is the truth. This is what it all meant. Um, and, uh, and so that's one of the things I love about them. And, and, and I think that Harry Potter does that, that very well indeed. And that kind of relates to what you call the theology of mysteries, right, Bose? Yes. Yes. Um, and what I think some of the kind of satisfaction of, of reading a mystery novel comes with. So what do you think some of the theology of mystery novels are from your perspective? One of the things that has always struck me emotionally when reading mystery novels is this sense of the underlying sort of brokenness hmm. of the world, this sense that there is something terribly, terribly wrong. Hmm. Um, they present us with this sort of Eden-like state, this, in a lot of cases, this beautiful country garden home, hmm. but there's like a serpent in it. Um, hmm. There's, it's like a, a paradise that has been spoiled. Hmm. And uh, um, it, it's sort of a symbolic reflection of... Uh, a cosmic reality hmm. and uh, I think um, one of the reasons mysteries are so popular with kids and uh, with people in general is because they don't lie they mm -hmm. don't condescend they tell us a truth about reality and that truth is that the world is broken that the world is tragic and mm -hmm. uh, that terrible things happen all the time and that death is a fact of life and uh, if you're a very anxious person or if you have paranoia or if you have ever suffered the loss of someone, then this is a feeling that you will connect with um, the second you start reading a mystery novel. If it's a well-executed mystery novel, you're going, yes, I feel this. Mm -hmm. um, this writer is capturing the horror and the sadness of existence, the, what it's like to be inside a nightmare. And uh, I think that's why mysteries are so popular with anxious people, because we want to see that, that sense of being trapped in a nightmare reflected on the page so that we can get it purged out of us. Um, there is a character in uh, Hercule Poirot's Christmas who says at the beginning of the story, one thing I love about um, Agatha Christie's books is that in the first chapter of like every book, a character says something like, um, I sense great danger or... I sense terrible evil approaching, mm -hmm. and you're immediately hooked. Well, in Hercule Poirot's Christmas, a woman says, you seem to have no consciousness of the evil in the world. I have. I can feel it. I've always felt it. Mm -hmm. And uh, it goes back to something that Chesterton said in, I think, Orthodoxy, mm -hmm. that original sin is the only Christian doctrine that can be proven. Mm -hmm. And murder mysteries sort of embody this because they make everyone a suspect and uh, I've sort of always loved murder mysteries I remember when I was four and five watching murder she wrote for some reason <laughs> but I didn't become 
really obsessed with them until after my best friend died in a mysterious way and there was a murder investigation. It was this whole thing. And I sort of became obsessed with mysteries. Uh, like, I was clinging to them almost as a form of salvation, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Like, I was looking t- for to them to rescue me from the uncertainty and the darkness and mm-hmm. the sort of horror that my life had become. And they helped to pull me out of that abyss with their... Um, conviction that is inherent in the structure of the story that things will be made right because in a mystery the the murderer never goes unpunished he he or she is always apprehended and justice is restored to to paradise and that's deeply satisfying to us because it doesn't always happen in real life and we want to see justice done we want to see the guilty punished we want to see the truth exposed because um, we need that. And uh, especially if we've been in situations where that has not happened to us, we need to see it in the pages of fiction. Hmm. Yeah, and I, I think I think you're right. I think that on the, on the surface level, what we can see as kind of entertaining fiction really appeals to a deep spiritual need, both for justice and order to be restored to the world, um, but I think also for me, one of the things I love about them is the sense that life can be intelligible. Do you know what I mean? Like when you read a mystery novel, you realize at the end that all of the crumbs that have been dropped are not just crumbs, that they lead to some great revelation, some kind of unifying narrative. And I think that's another thing that we can sometimes experience in our lives is this kind of ambiguity of life that you, you go through it and things happen and we want to know the reason for this or how it fits in or, or what it means. And in a mystery novel, there's this great satisfaction of it always means something. There's this moment where the veil is, is pulled back and, and it's made intelligible. And the, the thing is, in life, we don't always get that. In life, th- things happen um, and we search for meaning, but sometimes we can't find it. Uh, but I think that mystery novels speak to that desire for both justice to be done for order to be restored in Eden and also for someone to tell us why the why all of these things have happened and what it means okay. and, and make it somehow right. And I think that actually is a very deep kind of spiritual desire and even spiritual need is the need both for clarity and for, for resolution, for something to be made right in the world. Which makes sense, I think, of why people like Auden and Eliot have seen this as a very Christian... Um, a, a very Christian genre because it's something that says um, the ambiguity and the injustice will not have the final word. That there's this kind of satisfaction that we long for um, that at the heart of the Christian narrative says we will eventually get in some way. Yeah. Um, I think it's interesting. There's this, um, I th- that I think that I can't remember who said it, uh, something along the lines of that in a mystery novel, the, the detective is almost like a priest um, who kind of like brings, who kind of brings order and, and justice kind of to this situation. And I also wonder if in some ways, um, in a world where we are mostly secular, um, if that kind of brings a palatability to the idea of things being made right or being made just. Um, in a way that's not explicitly connected to religious ideas. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah. Would you agree with that, do you think? 
there's this really fascinating passage that Jan Martel wrote in one of his essays mm-hmm. that I think corresponds perfectly with what you were saying here, and I just wanted to read it, um, sort of revel in um, the brilliance of his insights. He mm-hmm. said, We all live a murder mystery of which we are the victim. The only modern genre that plays in the same high moral register as the Gospels is the lowly regarded murder mystery. If we set the murder mysteries of Agatha Christie atop the Gospels and shine a light through, we see correspondence and congruence, mm-hmm. agreement and equivalence. We find matching patterns and narrative similarities. They are maps of the same city, parables of the same existence. They glow with the same moral transparency. And so the explanation for why Agatha Christie is the most popular author in the history of the world. Her appeal is as wide and her dissemination as great as the Bible's because she is a modern apostle, a female one, about time after 2,000 years of men blathering on. And this new apostle answers the same questions Jesus answered. What are we to do with death? Because murder mysteries are always resolved in the end, the mystery neatly dispelled. We must do the same with death in our lives. Resolve it. Give it meaning. Put it into context, however hard that might be. And yet, Agatha Christie and the Gospels are different in a key way. We no longer live in an age of prophecy and miracle. We no longer have Jesus among us the way the people of the Gospels did. The Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are narratives of presence. Agatha Christie's are Gospels of absence. They are modern Gospels for a modern people, a people more suspicious, less willing to believe. Hmm. And so Jesus is present only in fragments and traces, cloaked and masked, obscured and hidden. But look, he's right there in her last name. Mainly, Hmm. though, he hovers, he whispers. Hmm. Wow, that is quite a passage. I think um, one of the things that I love about some of the adaptations of Poirot, particularly the older ones, there's, so there's, there's the ones that were all made in the 80s and 90s that were very um, kind of, you know, Art Nouveau and lovely and kind of whatever. Mm-hmm. And then they have the ones that he made kind of in his older years over the past few years that are very like serious and heavy. And darker. And darker. And I think I actually enjoy watching the older ones better, but there's kind of a moral seriousness okay. to the newer ones that I like. And one of the things that she pulls out um, or that he pulls out, because I think David Suchet had a, a good bit of um, kind of directing uh, power in this, is Poirot's Catholic faith, because in the books, um, this is foregrounded and not, depending on the book that you're reading, there is, we know that he's Belgian and that he believes in the good God. I just read uh, Death in the Nile, and this is, a, <laughs> this is a theme that comes up throughout it. Um, but particularly the murder on the Orient Express, I think that's my favorite version of it is the David Suchet one. Um, And bringing up this kind of the question of presence and absence, but how the only way that Poirot can kind of cope with this is throughout the, throughout the movie, you see him praying. And um, I don't know, there's something very moving to me about that. Um, Yes. But I do think, I think that's also so interesting of we are the, we are the more suspicious age, the the age that's not as willing to believe. Um, Oh, it's so fascinating. And that relates to one of the other things that we talked about is that all of these books are fundamentally about kind of choice and our capacity to choose to do the right thing or not. Um, Bose and I were talking about how uh, as a child for me, my, my mother would always say to me, you have a choice to make. Like if I was on, on the verge of a meltdown, 
um, she would say, you have a choice to make. You can, you can choose to kind of gain control over yourself and we can have a good day, you know, or whatever. And I remember feeling so frustrated as a kid because I would think, oh, she's right. Like I could not melt down right now, but I really want to melt down. And, um, and in a way, uh, specifically in Death in the Nile, Poirot is always kind of acting as that parental figure saying, you have a choice to make. Um, and you could choose not to do the evil thing which you want to do. And, and then watching characters kind of wrestle with that. And you see both the good and the bad to that. You see characters who could do bad and choose not to. And you see characters who could choose not to do bad and do it. Um, but I think that's also a very fundamentally Christian idea of we, our choices matter. We have the capacity to choose. The, and, and really that's, I mean, Agatha Christie is all about human nature. And it helps you see human choices and human motivations as as important and weighty and meaningful. Um, and, and that's something that I, I also love about mystery novels is kind of their emphasis on choice and and that our, our motives and our choices matter. And alongside that, um, I love the fact that Agatha takes people and their free will and their interior lives seriously. She acknowledges that people have choices. They're not just deterministic, that they're not, uh, you know, forced by inevitable fate to do certain things. Yeah. And uh, she, she takes... I was talking to a friend earlier about uh, how her, she has class divisions in her novels, and uh, the stories expose the prejudices of the ruling class in Britain. And what ends up happening is that the the poorest and lowest people are sort of vindicated hmm. um, against the bigotry of the upper classes. So she, she takes people that aren't considered people and shows you that they are people. And she gives them interiority. And uh, I've been thinking a lot about this quote that I shared with you the other day from one of Chesterton's essays, because of course Chesterton was a massive lover of mysteries and he read them and wrote them. He wrote, it is good that the average man should fall into the habit of looking imaginatively at 10 men in the street, even if only on the chance that the 11th might be a notorious thief. <laughs> and I think one of the things that happens, I'm sure you've noticed this, that when you've read enough mystery novels, you start looking at people in coffee shops and on the street and wondering about their interior lives. And is this person a thief? Could this person be a murderer? Could they be compelled to commit murder under the right circumstances? Perot said that everyone could be compelled to commit a murder under the right circumstances. Yes. And of course, well, we don't want to walk around being totally suspicious. What that does is it makes us look at people as possessing complex interior lives with motives, things that matter enough to them um, to sin or to kill for. Uh, it, it, it makes us look at other people as mysteries uh, worth contemplating and as people whose choices matter in the world. Um, and I love that about Chesterton too. He's always asking like how things make us experience the world. Um, and I think that's really good because I think in some ways our world can uh, e even, you know, even if it's not kind of a religious determinism, there can be a kind of secular determinism of, well, you're just kind of a collection of your experiences and your whatever, mm -hmm. and, and you're just kind of bound to make certain choices and we couldn't help it. You know, they're raised in this environment or not. Um, but, but we have choices to make. But we have we choices to make. We can choose good or evil. 
We can. And, and no matter what our background is, we, in this moment, we have a choice today. And it reminds me of, this is a funny thing, but uh, we were talking about it in my, in my class on ethics recently, about how in, in the, the dark night, uh, the Joker is always being like, do you know how I got these scars? And he tells a different story every time. And that's kind of meant to make us think that like whatever terrible thing happened to him justifies whatever he does. Um, but Agatha Christie novels are the opposite of that because they say you could be lower, upper class, you could be this, you could be that. But everyone has a choice. Everyone has an interior world. And, and I think that's something that we often forget in the modern world, um, that we actually do make choices and, and that our choices shape the worlds that we live and the people that we live around. And what could be more important than acknowledging that? And I think for me that part of what mystery novels are is that it shows us that life is an exercise in remembering and kind of how we tell the story, if that makes sense. Because like in a, in a mystery novel, all along the way, you're trying to look back for clues and trying to make sense of the clues and, and of everything. And that's kind of an exercise in saying, am I, am I remembering right or am I telling the story of what has happened? truly or correctly um, because it because the telling of that story really matters and like how it resolves or if it was true or not um, will have an impact on whether or not the murderer gets away and I think that's part of the the great satisfaction of it don't you both yes yeah and you had you had a thought on that or a, a different kind of thought on the way that they resolve and the building up to that I, I keep thinking about when I was in college and Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire came out and I didn't know why, but I was completely obsessed with that movie. And I went to see it three times and was sort of analyzing the structure in my head while I was watching. And I've watched it a bunch of times since then, trying to figure out why I liked it so much. And I finally figured out, because I started watching Perot and noticed they had the same emotional structure, especially towards the end. Um, there's this moment after the second task, after Harry has gone into the lake, there's this sort of half hour where everything sort of becomes a traditional murder mystery. And the director even said, I wanted to film it like a classic British mystery. But Harry finds a body in the woods, and he's walking around Hogwarts gathering information sort of accidentally. And uh, there's a growing sense of menace and foreboding because Snape says there's a that someone is stealing Polyjuice Potion, which creates imposters. So there's obviously an imposter in the castle, and Dumbledore's arguing with the Prime Minister. And so you're like, what is going on? This is getting really tense and scary. I don't think there'd been a scarier moment in the Harry Potter film series until that point. And then finally, at the end of the movie, it culminates in this moment where he's in Mad-Eye Moody's office, mm -hmm. and Mad-Eye's Mad like, by the way, I'm not actually Mad-Eye. The real Mad-Eye is in this trunk over here. And he's been <laughs> hidden there for nine months. And Alive, one might note. Alive. And he's been cutting off his hair and using it to make Polyjuice Potion to become an imposter. And you sort of go, oh, Voldemort was trying to kill him. He was using Mad-Eye um, to try and kill him. And the truth snaps into focus. And there's this immensely satisfying feeling of revelation. And Ryan Johnson, the director of Knives Out, said, when I am watching a story, a murder mystery in particular, I want to feel that moment of revelation at the end. I want to feel this sense of awe, my hair is standing up. I want to feel like I'm being lifted out of my chair. Hmm. And for me personally, the best 
all the best murder mysteries do that. And I'm sort of always trying to recapture that high of being in college and watching Goblet of Fire and <laughs> my hair standing on end at the end as I, as I feel Harry's suffering, but also the relief of understanding why he's been put through so many trials this year. Hmm. Yeah, and I think that just gets back to that sense of murder mysteries play to our desire to understand, for things to be revealed, for things to be put right. Um, and and so, Bose and I would recommend that you enjoy some mysteries in this time of anxiety and irresolution. Um, Don't you just, watch the news all day. No, <laughs> because the worst thing you can do. Yes, the news well, is yeah. like the news is like a murder mystery that never resolves. Ooh. <laughs> you should tweet that. I should. Uh, no, so in this time when we, we don't have much to be able to do to control the world other than, you know, caring for our neighbors, I think one of the most kind of emotionally satisfying things we can do is, is to read mystery novels because they give us that sense of satisfaction and re- resolution. So, Bose, I know I have a few of my own, but what would you recommend for um, good mystery novels, mystery movies? Um, what's on your list? First of all, watch Endeavor. The first six seasons are available on Amazon Prime. It is not only my favorite mystery show, but my favorite show of all time. It's set in Oxford, and it's about a handsome, lost young detective who solves mysteries and loves opera. Um, (laughs) There are also several Agatha Christie books. If you've never read Agatha Christie before, start with Five Little Pigs, probably her best novel, or Crooked House, which has probably her best twist um but it's also just a good novel throughout or evil under the sun which is sort of one of the quintessential perot novels mm-hmm. or peril at end house which is one of her earlier books and is also quintessentially perot with the, the country house and the woman in distress who needs to be protected it's mm-hmm. wonderful i think that's what I, I read over the summer so i think also we have slightly um I mean, I always love all the murder mysteries you send me, but I also have a, I'm, I'm, I'm murder mystery light because sometimes my sensitive soul needs like resolution, but not too much darkness. And so the, one of the things I would recommend is uh, everyone should read Gaudy Night because it is a long mystery novel. It is just about the turn to springtime. It takes, tr- it takes place in Oxford in Trinity term, which is, well, that's in about six weeks, but like it's this, the time of year to start reading it. And um, in that one, I shouldn't ruin it, but it, it's it's a very delightful, strange, Oxonian, 1920s novel about, it is a mystery, um, and it has a great revelation moment, but it's all about a woman who's, um, who's like one of the first classes of graduates, one of the first female graduates from Oxford, which was true for uh, Dorothy Sayers, the writer. Um, and there's this kind of mysterious things that keep on happening, in, um, but it has all the delight of 1920s of female academics, which of course I have an affinity for, and um, and Oxford. It's just delightful. It's Oxford. It's English. So I love that. Um, also, Knives Out was really quite fun. Uh, if you're going for a movie, and then I also love Poirot, um, and also the 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 Father Browns are really fun. Do you like the yeah. Father Browns? I do. Yeah, they're kind of of a different, they're not as neat as Agatha Christie um, and orderly. They're like a little bit more sprawling and long. Um, They're astonishingly poetic. 
they're very poetic and very about human nature. So that's G.K. Chesterton's series about um, the English uh, priest, Catholic priest, who goes around solving uh, mysteries, and they're quite fun too. Um, so I'll put links to all of these in there. Do you have any other? Is that did I stop you off, Bose, or are those all your recommendations? Those are mostly my favorites. Yeah. Endeavor Perot. You can watch Miss Fisher's Murder Mysteries if you like. Those are fun, but. I find the mysteries aren't as satisfying. I mostly like them for the costumes and for S.C. Davis's delightful performance. But if you need something very light, you can always watch that. Yes, yes. And that's half the fun of 1920s murder mysteries is they're excellent costumes. Mm-hmm. You know, one, one wants to wear a lovely dress and live in a seaside town and... Um, fly an sol- airplane. Fly an airplane, solve mysteries to one's heart's content. So... That is what we would recommend for all of you, is to enjoy, uh, in this time, the satisfaction, the emotional satisfaction of a mystery novel, and also perhaps to write your own. And I would also recommend, Bose has a Patreon, and he posts lots of interesting and delightful things on there, including an essay kind of about all this, all these topics, about uh, Agatha Christie and mystery novels and Harry Potter. Yeah, you just did one recently, right, Bose? An essay on several about Harry Potter and, and, and Agatha Christie. Christie. Yeah, um, so I will put a link into that, um, but you should definitely check that out. And we also recently did a quarantine book list, um, which people together with um, how many? Did we do fifteen books? I think fourteen. Fourteen. Yes. No, I added Middlemarch, so it's fifteen. Oh right, Middlemarch. Um, so we have. We a, should do another one. We should do another one soon. Um, but yes, yeah, so go check those out. And we made those public so everyone can access those. Uh, and Bose, where else can they find you on the internet if they want your, your thoughts or um, jokes and uh, mysteries? I'm mostly on Twitter at Sketches by Bose. Yes, so check that out. And uh, Bose, thank you for being on the show today. It's been delightful. Thank you. Everybody, don't watch the news. Go read a mystery novel. Yes, I, I fully support this. Um, stay safe, stay well, enjoy your mystery novels, and thank you all for listening to Speaking with Joy.